The first commercially bottled water is thought to have come from Malvern Hills in England. There is a site there in Malvern Hills called the Holy Well, and the water from this well has been purported for about 400 years to have beneficial, medicinal, and even miraculous properties. Before bottling began at this well in 1621, there were already rumors that the water from it was special. Local folklore included tales of various saints having passed through from time to time, and those saints then telling local hermits and squatters and other residents that the water was great, it was a gift from God, and so on. But it's worth noting that, again, this bottling effort was a commercial enterprise. So it was kind of in their interest to boost its perceived value proposition. And the celebrity endorsement of 1621 was telling stories about how saints love your product. They doubled down on these tales after Dr. John Wall, a well-known physician, came through to analyze the chemical contents of the spring water. In his published analysis, he said that the water contained, quote, nothing at all, end quote which you would think might have convinced him it wasn't anything special, except that he went on to play a leading role in turning Malvern into a spa town. In some cases, and for some products, nothing at all is a very positive attribute. The popularity of Malvern water increased in the 19th and 20th centuries, and in 1850, it was bottled on a large scale by Schweppes, which opened up a plant in the town and branded the local water Malvern Soda before, six years later, renaming it Malvern Seltzer Water. In the 1960s, the well became derelict, but it was reopened in 2009 under the brand Holy Well Spring Water by an independent family-owned company. There are a lot of well towns like Malvern throughout England and mainland Europe. This isn't as big a thing here in the U.S., but when I was living in Prague in the Czech Republic... I visited one of these towns with a friend, and they really do make a big deal about it. The water flows from antique sculptures, what amount to old-school water fountains, throughout the town. And you can put your bottle, your canteen, your cup, your whatever, underneath these fountains and take as much of the water as you like. Generally, there's either an entry fee to access the main plaza, where there's enough other enterprise in the area, restaurants and food carts and souvenir shops and such, that they can afford to just let people come in and drink as much of their water as they want for free, while still being able to make a profit. And the water, at least the kind that I tried at that place in Czech Republic, was absolutely terrible. For my preferences, at least, it was just some of the worst water I've ever tasted in my entire life. It wasn't quite seltzer water, It wasn't bubbly in the sense that artificially manufactured fizzy water tends to be. And it certainly wasn't just pure, clean, flat, unmessed with drinking water. It was heavily mineralized, bitter tasting, well water. And I could barely take a sip without grimacing. But people around me were just chugging it down, going in for seconds and thirds. They bottled this stuff and they sold it in stores and people bought it in droves. 
despite having access to perfectly fine tap water. Some older people had staked out spots near these fountains, and they just seemed to sit there and sip at this water all day long. I was told that many people in the region still believed that these waters from these wells have healing properties that can cure the ailments that come with age, among other things. And again, it doesn't hurt the local industry, the brand of this water, that people believe these things in these types of miracle cures. Even when all the research that's ever been done on the subject says otherwise, or at the very least says there's no reason to believe there's anything particularly special about the water beyond the purported saint recommendations and easily disproven anecdotes on the matter, all the same, it helps them sell it, and it helps keep tourists coming in every year. This same conflict between the perception of quality, of naturalness, of being special for a simple product like water, and its actual potency or quality, has been playing out in a slightly different way elsewhere. Poland Spring Water, a brand owned by Nestle, one of many bottled water brands they own, is being sued for not being spring water. And by most definitions, that's inarguably the case. They were sued back in 2003 for the same thing, basically, when the law dinged them for sourcing their so-called spring water from regular groundwater sources, which were located next to a spring that itself was located next to a former garbage dump. Which, I mean, it sounds bad. When you buy something called spring water, you're kind of telling yourself, even if not consciously, hey, this is pure and clean and healthy. This is good for me. And you're not wrong in thinking that. There are hardcore standards in place as to what you can get when you buy bottled water. And the fact that the water you're drinking is coming from a site near a garbage dump doesn't lessen its quality. The water you're drinking is so heavily processed that they could have sourced it from a sewage lagoon and you'd still be fine. At the end of the day, it's just hydrogen and oxygen molecules and everything else, anything that could possibly be toxic or gross, is removed. But the problem here is that Nestle was claiming a value add to their product. Calling something Poland Spring Water is making a claim that this is spring water, which is a different thing from just water. It's worth noting that neither Aquafina nor Dasani, which are bottled water brands owned by Pepsi and Coca-Cola, respectively, claim to be spring water. They both source their water from the exact same place your tap water comes from municipal water supplies. So their packaging may imply that, hey, this is something nice. It's better than the water coming from your faucet, even though it's not. But their name doesn't imply more than that, and legally, that makes all the difference. The new Poland Spring lawsuit is still up in the air. It was only filed in early August of 2017, so it will be some time before it all shakes out. But it's worth remembering that one, in most cases, the bottled water you're getting is the same as from the tap, more or less. Two, in the cases when it is different from what you're getting from the tap, it's probably because they removed even more of the non-water stuff than the local water supply does. So it's even closer to just pure hydrogen and oxygen than before. It's not closer to nature, it's actually further away from it. And three, that means that this type of water is unlikely to cure you of anything, or even be special in any way. Which, having tasted the natural spring water at one of these blessed springs, 
I'm frankly kind of happy about. I would hate to have to down more of that stuff in order to be cured of something, but that's just me. I should note that this is just a quick discussion of the water that's being sold in bottles, not the consequences of the bottled water industry or the bottles, the containers being used. That's an entirely different creature, and though there are massive benefits to having remarkably pristine water available in highly portable containers, ready to be shipped to disaster zones and the like at a moment's notice, relatively inexpensively compared to the alternatives. This method of distribution also comes with a huge number of negative consequences, including really horrible things like these big water bottling companies buying up local water sources to sell back to locals. But what I want to talk about today is the general availability of water and whether access to water and other related seemingly fundamental things should be considered a human right. And if they are considered to be a human right, how these resources should be made available. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. What is the purpose of a government? What responsibilities should a government have? What expectations should we have of our government? And at what point does a government begin to overstep, to presume too much, to go too far? The article I want to start from today comes from the Bloomberg Bureau of National Affairs, and it's entitled, Peru Makes Water Access Constitutional Right, Sets Up Sewage Plan. This article outlines recent plans, recent as of June of 2017, made by the Peruvian government to improve access to clean, potable water in their country, alongside access to sewage services. And these are two things that a lot of people living in developed countries around the world tend to take for granted, but it's not something that everyone, even in places like the US and European countries, can claim, even if it feels that way much of the time to many of us. In the US, for instance, tests in 33 cities around the country found unsafe levels of lead in the drinking water. And any level of lead in drinking water is unsafe, but these tests showed levels that were even above the tiny range that politicians can usually overlook and sweep under the rug. I spoke at greater depth about that in a past episode about lead contamination, but in short, any amount of lead in the water is not good, and it's not just in places like Flint, Michigan, where such contamination exists, though they certainly stand out as one of the more newsworthy and horrible examples of this kind of infrastructural negligence in an otherwise well-developed country. But in countries like Peru, countries where there are very modern cities, there are also vast inequities and infrastructural shortcomings throughout a great deal of the country. And these shortcomings are amplified, particularly in rural regions. From that Bloomberg BNA article, quote, The National Institute of Statistics and Information reported at the end of 2016 that 94.5% of urban households had access to potable water, while 88.3% had access to sewage service. The numbers dropped considerably in rural areas, with 71.2% of households having access to water 
and only 24.6% having access to sewage service. Of the 81,231 rural and urban areas with 2,000 or fewer inhabitants, 54,318 did not have water or wastewater systems. End quote. Now, sewage services are a fairly essential component to public safety. Untreated sewage can contaminate land and water resources and can spread disease. It also makes developing modern amenities like toilets and running water from the tap difficult because, I mean, where does the waste go? If you have no treatment plants, no place to shuttle all that wastewater, you are left with far fewer and much worse options. You have to put it somewhere, and generally, lacking these types of systems, that somewhere is in your yard, in a neighborhood lagoon, or something along those lines. They're wildly imperfect solutions that only increase the problem over time, and actually can introduce entirely new problems. The goal here, though, that they hope to achieve by passing an amendment to their constitution, the outline of which they presented back in June, is to vastly expand the range of this type of service, to spend about $15.2 billion to make this happen. And that's what they estimate the expansion will require by the time their goals are met for the entire country in 2030, though they plan to have full coverage for both potable water and sewage for urban areas by 2021. Peru is pursuing this goal, in part because it will solve a whole slew of existing problems and vastly increase the quality of life for a large percentage of their citizenry. But in part, this move is a political one. As of July 2010, the United Nations General Assembly recognized access to clean water and sanitation as a fundamental human right. This was an expansion to the previously existing general comment on the issue, in which they basically said the same, but without any binding measure attached to it. When that comment was turned into a resolution, Resolution 64-292, if you're curious, this concept became less of a wouldn't-that-be-nice sort of thing, and more of an if-you-want-to-be-part-of-this-club-you'd-better-lean-into-this sort of thing. Now, UN resolutions are technically binding, but because there's no enforcement mechanism for these resolutions, there's no UN police force that will show up and tase you if you fail to install plumbing for everyone in your country, these are also considered to be orders without teeth. Yes, if you defy enough UN resolutions, you could be called out and maybe even eventually kicked out of one of the most influential political forums in history. But should you choose to drag your heels while going through the motions of making those things happen, well, you'd probably be fine if you were to perhaps pass your own resolutions back home, but consistently leave any concrete steps to the next politician to control the country after you've left. There's not a lot that can be done about it. You can point at that, point at these plans that you've made, that you haven't acted on, but that you've made, and say that you're making the effort. And no one is likely to do anything about it. And that's part of why seeing actual movement like this in Peru is fairly remarkable. They edited their constitution to make this happen. They set real, firm goals and started paying for them immediately. Part of the plan has been budgeted out by this administration and part for the next. 
I really don't like to default to cynicism, but if you look around at other examples of this kind of process elsewhere, and all the effort in many places around the world to make it look like something is happening when nothing is actually happening, this example of a government actually doing things, things that are not immediately beneficial to just the ruling class, it comes as a pleasant surprise. But it also raises the question, should the government be providing these types of amenities? Should they be responsible for spending public money in this way for this purpose? Should our governments be fronting the money, money we gave them through taxes, to pay for services that someone somewhere has decided are necessities? That someone from another country with different norms has decided are human rights? Asked another way, if the United Nations declares that flush toilets with robotic bidets attached to them, the fancy kind of toilets that play cheerful music while they spray warm water at your undercarriage after you've used the toilet, the kind that they have even in public airport bathrooms in Japan, if the UN decides those robo-toilets should be a human right, should Peru feel compelled to install that specific facility as well? Now, arguably, humans got along just fine before modern sewage treatment facilities and toilets and things like potable tap water were invented. Yes, there are huge benefits to having these types of things, but there would be benefits to having those singing robo-toilets as well. And there are other beneficial things that the government could spend $15 billion on, or that taxpayers could have spent that money on had they not paid it away in taxes in the first place. Where do we draw the line? And how do we decide which of these upgrades, these projects, are actually necessary in a fundamental universal way, and which are merely one group's standards being enforced on another group? Should we all get robo-toilets just because Japan has them, and just because they're awesome, and they truly are awesome? If you've never had the chance to use one, prepare yourself. It will make your toilet at home seem incredibly lame by comparison. But is that enough to justify government spending tax dollars to make sure we all have these awesome toilets? Should that be something the government gets involved with and spends public funds on? Or should that be left to individuals to invest in or not invest in as they see fit based on their personal toilet preferences, but also their other needs? Again, the other things that they could be spending that money on that might be more fundamental to them. Let's explore that question further by imagining a somewhat different scenario than we have playing out today. Imagine that we human beings have expanded our reach substantially. We're not just all over the land masses of planet Earth. We're also out on seasteads, floating around on cities on our oceans. We are under the oceans too, protected under bubble domes or whatever technology ends up making more sense in the future. And we're out in space. We've got colonies and even full-blown cities on the moon and on Mars, floating balloon ships in the atmosphere of Venus. We're out on asteroids. We've got some free-floating bases at Lagrange points throughout the solar system. We are just all over the place. How might this scenario and the wildly different places that we are living and the wildly different needs 
and requirements for existence of all these different places change our perception of what is and what is not a human right. There's a term in the aviation world, pilot in command. That's the person with ultimate authority over an aircraft, someone with whom the buck stops, and who is essentially the lord of his or her domain, at least for the period of the flight that they're on and within the confines of their vehicle. That means in some circumstances, this person could very well outrank their typical professional or military superior, at least for the duration of that flight within the confines of that plane. There are similar rules embedded within maritime law for those who operate ships and submarines. There is so much that can go wrong in such situations, in the operation of such vehicles, that it is therefore important to have an absolute authority who will be obeyed without question. And it's important enough that they can even throw typical rules out the window in some circumstances to ensure that that plane lands safely, that that submarine doesn't experience some kind of catastrophic failure, even if that means the pilot of that vessel has to supersede orders from their typical military superior. It's important enough that these vehicles get where they're going, that superseding those typical structures, which are generally quite important to those types of organizations, is allowed. It is something that has been deemed necessary to make sure that everyone is safe, as safe as they can be. There are many fictional accounts of life in space that include similar concerns, and consequently, there are a lot of fictional governments that exist within these asteroid bases or under domes under the ocean that have similar laws. If you are on Earth and you get a leak in your roof, that sucks, but you will likely be fine unless you're in some kind of extreme situation environmentally. But in space, on Mars, if you get a leak, you are potentially dead. If there is a puncture in the tunnel leading from one building to another, you and probably everybody else in that building are dead. If your neighbor's biodome has a leaky seal that they haven't gotten around to fixing, that affects not just them, it affects everyone on that station. It uses up your finite supply of oxygen, If they are under the ocean, it might impact the structural integrity of the entire building. So, although on Earth, it might be each individual's decision if and when to fix and maintain their stuff, that right would likely have to be taken away, or at least truncated, in situations in which someone being lazy could catastrophically impact everyone else. So, in short, different situations call for different approaches to governance and different perceptions of what kind of rights we have. Colonies on Mars will very likely need to be more authoritarian, at least at first, to ensure that the tragedy of the commons doesn't doom everyone to death by asphyxiation. Undersea colonies will not be able to tolerate certain types of free expression, if said free expression gets in the way of producing enough potable water for everyone to drink. These differences in governing necessitate a different approach to human rights as well. It may be decided that everyone on Earth gets singing robo-toilets, but up in space, they'll need to ensure all waste is recycled, is used to help grow more food, so the systems that work on Earth won't necessarily work there. 
And at the same time, they'll probably need to have some human right guarantee of government provided spacesuits and an access to breathable air. Some earthbound concerns will likely fall by the wayside, while others will spring up to take a position of priority. The standards of one place will not always apply to another based on the varying environmental concerns, based on the varying cultures, based on the varying expectations of the people there. So the question of what expectations we should have for such things is a legitimate one, even if at first glance it may seem simple enough a question to answer that we can just say, well, I think we should all have the basics. Because what are the basics anyway? The fundamental expectations of societies change depending on where you are, but they also change over time and they change in wildly unbalanced ways. It may be that we get robo-toilets for all before we get healthcare for all. Not because fancy toilets are more necessary than cancer treatments and flu vaccines, but because healthcare, in the U.S. at least, has become heavily politicized, and very awesome robo-toilets, at least thus far, have not been. And healthcare is actually a great example here to help understand why even things that some people consider to be the basics are not so cut and dry. Yes, if we are going to say things like air and water should be fundamentals provided to citizens by their government, it makes a kind of sense that things like antibiotics and pregnancy services should be as well. They all tie back to general wellness and the propagation of the species, the survival of people. But which pregnancy services should be provided? Which medicines for which types of diseases or injuries? Are we going to treat just the potentially fatal diseases? Or are we going to work on the uncomfortable ones as well? Are we going to treat just life-threatening injuries? Or are we going to fix broken bones? What about mental health? Should therapy be covered by the government? What about so-called inessential surgeries that will improve a person's life, but which won't save their life? Maybe because of a birth defect, they have trouble walking. And they can walk, but a simple surgery would help them move around more comfortably, like everyone else. But they won't die if they don't get it. Should that be covered? What about cosmetic surgery? Many Nordic countries have universal health care, which covers everything, including things like cosmetic surgeries. The argument being that if people really feel strongly enough about this change to themselves, to their bodies, they will probably be better off. They'll be mentally healthier if they are capable of making those changes. Should taxpayer dollars fund this type of procedure? What about for someone who wants to undergo gender reassignment surgery? Some aspects of this are similar to what someone might undergo for cosmetic purposes, and some of the arguments for it and against it are similar as well. The patient will ideally be healthier in a holistic way if they feel that their body is correct, feels right, is their own, represents them well. Should this be covered? Is this a basic in the sense that we should expect it to be taken care of by the government? Where does the line get drawn? Most of the people I've spoken to who come from countries with universal health care 
take a sort of pride in the fact that their country can afford to do these things, that they pay into a pot that allows someone else to become more themselves through cosmetic surgeries, not to mention people not worrying about going broke or into insane debt if something like cancer befalls them. There's a sense of pride in being able to take care of each other and knowing that they will be similarly taken care of should they require it. But there are arguments to be made that this is an overstep by the government and other systems could allow people to have the resources they require for such things when they require it, but to not have to spend anything when they themselves don't need to, to be more self-sufficient, in other words less reliant on the government to take care of ourselves. And that same argument typically also points out that when we are taxed more heavily, we are less independently capable because we have fewer resources to personally spend however we see fit on things that we have personally deemed to be important rather than what the government has decided is important for us, perhaps based on standards that are different from our own. Now I'm going to let that thread hang for now and go off on a bit of a tangent, but it's related to this larger conversation, I promise. There is something that's happening as a consequence of how we practice capitalism. The form of capitalism that we practice is not pure, as tends to be the case with any philosophy once it touches the real world, but It's also heavily influenced by things like antitrust laws on one side and pro-lobbying laws and the Citizens United ruling, which gives corporations all kinds of capabilities in terms of influencing our politics on the other. I discussed this topic more broadly in a past episode called Corporatocracy, but I want to focus on another aspect of this confluence of variables here, namely that regardless of why corporations are becoming increasingly big and powerful, and in many cases, more powerful even than governments. The stats here are pretty boggling. Apple alone is worth almost 1% of the entire planet's GDP, according to 2017 estimates by the World Bank. The world's GDP is estimated to be $74.2 trillion, and Apple is almost 1% of that. Now, when I say worth, I'm talking about Apple's market cap, which means we are tallying up all their publicly traded shares and such, in addition to the massive pile of cash that they're sitting on. So that's illiquid capital versus gross domestic product, which isn't the same thing. But it's still a fairly incredible comparison, especially when you consider that their market cap is worth more than the GDP of 183 out of the 199 countries for which the World Bank has GDP data available. Not an apples-to-apples comparison, you might say, but useful for showing scale. So if you consider that scale, the nation-sized scale that some of these corporations are playing at, it seems not so ridiculous to think that perhaps they could help us navigate the tricky gray zones between paying taxes and having government entities try to fulfill our every need and sticking with the individualist approach, paying less but also having access to less by default. Consider, for instance, Amazon's Prime service, which you can subscribe to for, I want to say, $99 a year or something like $11 a month. 
This service gives you access to streaming music and movies and games and a brand new collection of free ebooks each month alongside unlimited online photo storage. It gives you discounts on products, both online and now starting the week that I'm recording this at Whole Foods grocery stores, which Amazon recently purchased. It also gives you free two-day shipping on a huge swath of items from flatware to clothing to electronics to whatever else you might need. The EBT program, which is the modern iteration of food stamps here in the U.S., a welfare program for folks who need some assistance affording food and other necessities, which allows them to basically swipe a card at places that accept this program and pay for those groceries and such with money the government deposits in their account each month. EBT allows those who use it to purchase groceries from a wide variety of sources, including Amazon Fresh, which is Amazon's online grocery store where you order what you need and it arrives at your door shortly thereafter. And back in June, Amazon made Prime memberships available to people using EBT at about half the normal price, $6 a month instead of $11 a month. So think about that for a second. This is a program that, for a low monthly fee, provides people with entertainment, cloud storage services, a means of acquiring discounted food, even, importantly, in food deserts, educational services like ebooks and audiobooks, and a sprawling and growing catalog of other benefits. This was very much a business move for Amazon. I mean, they're a business, so every move they make will necessarily somehow tie back to straight up dollars and cents. That's just the nature of this type of entity. But because of how they've leveraged their resources and because of how they've consistently reinvested in what is available to Prime members, they've concretely demonstrated something that I think could prove to be more than a little appealing to governments, especially government entities that are trying to solve problems like food deserts where people have trouble acquiring fresh produce because there's nowhere nearby selling such produce at decent prices, or in some cases at all. It might also be appealing to those trying to provide educational and entertainment resources to people who would otherwise be left without anything to do and no way to learn beyond their often underfunded schools. Many libraries already provide online ebook and audiobook resources in addition to the hard copy books on their shelves. But increasingly, they also offer things like free subscriptions to Lynda, which is a service I've mentioned on this show before as a sponsor, and which is basically an online library of training videos to learn Photoshop, to learn to sing, to learn to write better, and things of that nature. My local library here in Memphis offers Lynda for free to anyone with a library card. My tax dollars, then, are paying for this service, and presumably, Lynda is offering that service at a discounted rate because of the scale that such a partnership enables. They can afford to offer it for, let's say, five bucks a person per month instead of 20, though it could be way less than that for all I know, because it will bring in a lot more people than they would otherwise have, and economies of scale kick in. So their cost of providing those services drop precipitously as more people begin to participate. Now, in this case, then, Linda and those other services that these libraries are providing are private companies filling in gaps, things that the government wants to provide and is spending tax dollars on, but that they personally would not be very good at providing. It wouldn't make financial sense 
They probably wouldn't produce a very good product, but they also wouldn't be able to do it efficiently. I wonder if the same kind of system could be applied more widely beyond just educational tools. I think libraries are teaching us a solid lesson here on how government and private enterprise resources could be combined effectively, but I wonder if it could go further into other spaces. Imagine, for instance, if the government made a deal to include a free Amazon Prime membership for everyone using the EBT program. That would save those people money, but it would also likely turn more of their welfare dollars toward Amazon rather than other purveyors. This would fulfill Amazon's existential need to always be making more money, but it would also provide a slew of valuable services to people who might otherwise need to spend what money they do have on entertainment and transportation to get across town to the grocery store. Why not make use of this effective, efficient distribution network that Amazon has built and get better, cheaper groceries that way? Why not save money and watch what's available on Amazon's online catalog of movies and TV shows and read the free books that they provide each month and save that money month over month for other things, to spend on things like rent and other necessities. And hell, if something like this really worked well, why not just give it to everyone? Why not expand it beyond people with EBT? Why not provide all American taxpayers with Amazon Prime by default? And if that went well, if that proved to be a popular service or collection of services, why not expand it to include other things? Other things provided by Amazon, maybe, but also other companies. Why not figure out how much we could all get when we essentially purchase services at scale, in bulk, through our government. I wonder how many of our incidental and entertainment costs, in particular, could essentially disappear if our government services shopped around effectively and corporations competed to provide the best possible package deal to all 330 million-ish people in the United States. Now, there are reasons not to do this. There are reasons why we don't do it and reasons why we probably shouldn't. Many reasons, in fact. As tempting and interesting as it could be to just dive right in and scale up these businesses and put them to work, making sure we all have what we all need, plus more of what we want, as a fundamental base-level part of the taxes we pay, there's always the threat That one day Amazon will wake up and think, you know what? I'm going to need more money for the services I'm providing you with. And the government will be out of luck, as will all of us who have come to depend on those services. Because those grocery stores that were competing with Amazon would have gone out of business in the meantime due to our increasing reliance on one type of food distribution. And Amazon competitors, current and future, operating within any of the fields that they play in, wouldn't be able to compete with something several times bigger than the company as it exists today. The same would be true across the board for anyone the government favored at this scale within any industry. We might get some great stuff built into our tax system, and we would get them essentially as welfare programs, something almost like a guaranteed basic income, but with a collection of services that we're guaranteed to have as opposed to money each month. But doing so would probably cripple our economy and the trade-off. Government services would become reliant on private businesses, and those businesses would become reliant on government paydays. The whole global economic system would become more fragile as a result. But what if, alternatively, 
the government simply bought these companies and turned them into public utilities. This would be a tricky thing to accomplish with Amazon, despite how much the U.S. government must sometimes drool over their massive and impressive supply chain and distribution infrastructure. But speculation about this sort of acquisition has been posited in the past. In regards to social networks, Facebook, for instance, or Twitter, could be bought up and made into a freely available community hub that wouldn't have to worry about shareholders and doing douchey things to try to rake in more advertising dollars. Facebook, in particular, has been the focus of this type of speculation recently because of the role it played in information dissemination, positive and negative, in the 2016 election here in the U.S. I personally would argue, however, that Twitter would probably be a much better target if something like this were to go down, in part because it's smaller, with a relatively tiny market capitalization, and in part because it's kind of a pariah relative to fast-growing networks like Facebook and Instagram, because its growth has kind of plateaued, which is not cool in the world of venture capital-funded tech companies. Being bought by a government and utilized as a public utility would solve that problem. You don't need unlimited growth when you're not reliant on the whims of investors for your continued existence. But, of course, just like with Amazon's Prime, becoming essentially a shopped-out welfare program, buying this type of infrastructure would also create entirely new problems. Who, for instance, would trust a government-owned social network? What would be the incentive to keep it up to date in terms of technology and design and usability? And I can totally see some of the utility in having such a network available as the official national community communication channel. The week I'm recording this episode, Hurricane Harvey is rolling through Texas, and people stuck on their roofs, desperate for rescue, have turned to Twitter to try to get the attention of rescue workers and strangers with boats who might be able to help them. And a government agency with access to more raw data from Twitter could, conceivably, make better use of that data and better manage this type of emergency, using that data to help guide official rescue workers, but also to better organize citizens with boats who want to help out. But would those use cases justify the cost of not just buying, but also running a company of that scale? Twitter is no Facebook. It's got around 320 million active users compared to Facebook's 2 billion active users. But, I mean, that's still pretty massive. It spent around $3 billion in operating costs in 2016 and still did not make a profit. Imagine if all that was pure expense without ad revenue and the like to pay for five-sixths of that cost. It would be a tough sell to the public who, after all, would be paying for it. So the question here is whether these things are necessary. A government-owned social network, outsourced welfare programs, existing internal welfare programs, healthcare, psychological services, air, water. What are each of these things worth to us? And who should decide how we access these things? Which of these should be default resources that we have, whether we want them or not, that we are essentially born into, paying for? And which of these should be optional? perhaps more expensive and less accessible as a consequence of being optional, but still, things we don't need to invest in unless we personally want to for 
ourselves as individuals. Where do we draw the line? And are government entities the right entities to spend this money, this tax money that we all pay? Are they the right ones to spend it optimally? And if these things are the types of resources that we want for ourselves and for our countrymen, what is the best possible way to acquire them and disseminate them? And importantly, should any of these things be absolute worldwide human rights? Or are they all just robo-toilets? Totally rad, perhaps, but also generally unnecessary expenses for the majority of the population of the planet, at least as of today. And that brings me back to my original question. What is the purpose of government? How do we want to organize and what structures, what systems of systems will allow for the best balance, the most resilient infrastructure, the most rugged but still flexible model to ensure most of us are living in a world conducive to the pursuit of our individual happiness, and that will allow us to do so without lighting the fuse on some kind of future societal time bomb as a consequence of the choices that we make today. There's no single right answer to any of these questions. And that's part of what makes them so difficult, but also so important and interesting to ask. Today, rather than a book, I would like to recommend a movie that I watched not long ago. This is a Netflix documentary, so you'll need to have Netflix to watch it or have somebody else's login for their Netflix account. The movie is called Icarus, and I didn't really know what to expect walking into this at first. In about the first half of the movie, it's almost like a Morgan Spurlock kind of movie where it's like the documentarian putting himself through the ringer to show what doping is like for high-performance athletes. He's a cyclist, and he starts taking performance-enhancing drugs to show what that's like. But in the process of figuring this out and finding experts to work with, he comes into contact with this guy who is a well-known expert in Russia. And this is what shapes the second half of the movie, where it all kind of spirals, and you find out that this guy in Russia has been associated with the Russian Olympics program. And a lot of information begins to come out that eventually leads to a lot of the stories that you probably saw in the press over the past several years about Russia's doping program and how they have been systematically and with permission and support from the highest levels helping their athletes use performance-enhancing substances and consequently were under threat of not being able to even participate in the Olympics and other international competitions for a while. So I don't want to give away too much more than that. It's an entertaining movie. The characters involved are great, and it is really well produced, and the information shared and what happened as a result is really surprising. It totally caught me off guard. And the movie is called Icarus, which you can find on Netflix, potentially elsewhere, but it is definitely available on Netflix. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. My blog is at exilelifestyle.com. And you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the show at letsknowthings.com. While there, consider signing up for the weekly free newsletter, which essentially contains a collection of links to interesting things every Monday. 
You can find me on pretty much every social network at Colin is my name, though it's just Colin Wright on Facebook. Feel free to reach out and say howdy. Thank you so much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.